Well, this is our uh, fourth week in this series called Alternative Acts, a, a series in which we have been looking at, I think Jesus has been presenting to us an alternative way to live our life with God compared to uh, some of the more religious behaviors that he was being confronted with in his day, but our religious behaviors that um, are very, very easy to slip into even for us. In fact, this whole series, Alternative Acts, as we're going through Matthew chapter 23, what Jesus is really doing over and over and over again is he's identifying the markers of what it looks like when somebody's sincere-hearted devotion to God kind of degenerates into what for this series I'm just calling mere religion. For example, in the first week of the series, Jesus says, you know that, that your devotion to God has degenerated into religion when everything you do religiously is motivated by a desire to be seen by other people. If your religious or spiritual actions are motivated by a desire to be approved of or admired by other people, to be noticed and recognized by others, then you're just living a religion. Um, in the second week, Jesus said, you know, if your idea of faithfulness is kind of multiplying rules, making rules and raising the expectations that you put on yourself and other people, that's just living a religion. Last week, um, Jesus said, if your idea of obedience has everything to do with whether or not your behavior has conformed strictly to the letter of the law, rather than just embodying the spirit of it, then you're just living a religion. And this week, in the text that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus says, if your idea of devotion to God has you majoring in the minors, then your living is just a religion. He says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Jesus has talked so far in this series about status seeking. He's talked about rule making. He's talked about truth telling. And now in this passage, he addresses the relationship between faith and financial giving. And in this passage where he says you tithe, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. What Jesus is referring to is an ancient Jewish law which instructed Israelites to take 10% of everything they produce in a year and to give it to God. The, the law is found in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22. It says this. He says, a tithe of everything from the land, be sure to set aside a tenth, sorry, of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, and olive oil. And the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. So that you may learn to revere or worship the Lord your God always. Basically what the law said was that every year a faithful Jew was to set aside 10% of everything they produced. Everything they made in that year and to bring it down to the temple as an offering 
to God. Now, what they would have made, they weren't a money-based society. They were a, a trade-based society, a largely agrarian farming society. So what people would have made was, uh, if you owned olive groves, you would have made olive oil. If you owned vineyards, you would have made wine. If you owned fields, you would have produced grain. If you, you know, raised animals, you, you would have produced, you know, offspring of sheep and goats and whatever. If you had fruit trees, you would have, you know, raised that. And what you were to do is you were to gather 10% of everything you produce and bring it down to the temple in Jerusalem and offer it to God. Basically, some of it would get barbecued on the altar and you would, it would be given back to you and you would take some of the olive oil and some of the wine and the grain for bread and, and you would take some of the meat and you would throw this massive party for you and all your loved ones in the presence of God with the stuff that God had given you and you would just celebrate how good God had been to you that year. And all of the rest of it where you didn't eat, which was by far the most of it, um, you would leave that as the temple, as a donation. That was food for priests and for temple staff. That was stuff that would get donated to the poor. Those were donations that allowed the temple operations to keep going uh, year after year after year. But every year you were to bring a tenth. And when Jesus says, you give a tenth of your spices, that's not actually a criticism. Jesus is marveling at how seriously the Pharisees took this particular law. Because the, the Jewish law only mentioned like crops and animals and stuff. It never mentioned things like spices. You know, the small stuff you grow in your little garden at home. But what the rabbis figured, the rabbis thought, listen, all of the stuff that you're supposed to tithe is all stuff that you eat. Therefore... Everything that you eat should be tithed before you eat it. You should give 10% to God before you consume it. And since we use spices and herbs from our garden to season our food, those are things that we eat. So we should include them in our tithes. And so they kind of expanded the definition of the stuff that ought to be given to God. And not only expanded the definition, they deepened their commitment because the, the rabbis used to say, you know, and, and it's not good enough just to estimate, right? I've got a little dill plant. It's got 10 stalks. I'm going to cut one off and give it to God. No, 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 no. What if that stalk was smaller than 10% of the whole plant? You have to weigh the whole plant and then carve off 10% and give exactly 10% to God. Jesus is actually commending the Pharisees and saying, I can't even believe how meticulous you are about being obedient to this command of giving 10% of everything you've made to God. And yet, this is what he says, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. By justice, Jesus means all of the ways in which we participate uh, financially and otherwise in making wrong things right in our world, in addressing matters of injustice in our world, the ways that we participate in fixing things for people for whom life has been unfair. In Jesus' day, it would have been people like orphans and widows. There was no social safety net. The, there was no way, no one was protecting their rights and looking out for their safety. And Jesus says, that's just not right. In our day, maybe it's the homeless or people who live below the poverty line or foreigners like with our anchor causes or maybe First Nations or people who live with disability. Or who, who's looking out for those for whom life has been unfair? 
By mercy, a little bit different. Mercy is not about people whose lives have been unfair. Mercy is about people whose lives have been unkind. It's compassion and kindness. It's pity for somebody's situation when their situation has when life's been unkind to them. It, you know, visiting somebody at a funeral home or bringing a meal to a family that is uh, struggling with illness or providing grocery cards to a family that's out of work. You know, these aren't matters of justice. They're just mercy. I just, my heart breaks for your situation. How can I help? Faithfulness um, has to do with, scholars debate whether it has to do with our life with God or our life with the people around us. But I, I think that's a false choice. Jesus said, all of your life is about loving God and loving people. The two are connected. I think faithfulness is about how we, because of our life with God, serve and walk with and are committed to and devoted to the people that God has put in our life, no matter what circumstances they find themselves in. And here's Jesus' critique of the Pharisees. He says, you're so meticulous and you're so careful about your obedience in matters that have to do with tithing down to the minutest detail. And yet you completely ignore justice and mercy and faith, the big matters of faithfulness, right? You're, you're particularly attentive to how you obey the rules and you completely ignore the plight of people. Jesus criticizes them on the one hand for their lack of generosity. He says this, still in verse 23, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Jesus says, you, what I wish you would have done is I wish that you had um, been engaged in bringing justice and mercy and living in faithfulness to the people around you without sacrificing your commitment to, to tithing in, with such scrupulosity, with such meticulousness and exactitude. I wish you had done both. This isn't an either or proposition either. You know, you use your money to tithe to God or you can use your money to execute justice and mercy. But no, no, no. This is a both and situation. God is begging Jesus is begging the Pharisees to, um, to obey the commands that have to do with tithing while still fighting for justice and mercy and faithfulness. In fact, he calls those things, in this passage, he calls them the more important matters of the law. That might be overstating it. Uh, the, the rabbis used to debate whether some commands were more important than others. They would use language of weighty and light. Some commands were light and some commands were weighty. And the question was, do you need to obey all commands the same? So they used to, as an example of a light command, quote unquote, they used to quote Deuteronomy 22.6. It says, if you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother's sitting on the young or the eggs, don't take the mother with the young. Right, the law basically says this. Okay, you're walking down the road and you're hungry for breakfast and you happen upon this nest and the mom's sitting there on the eggs. Listen, grab the eggs if you want them, but don't grab the mom. You don't cook the mom and cook the eggs. You know, like that's unnecessary. Leave the mom there, take the eggs, have your breakfast and just go on your way. The rabbis consider this to be one of the light laws. It, it's a command, there it is. It doesn't happen very often. It's not a huge deal. It's a fairly minor situation. 
And so they would say that's a light law. The heavy laws were things like Micah chapter 6 verse 8. And this is what Jesus is quoting went to the Pharisees. He says, God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This, the rabbi said, is a heavy command. Not because it matters more, is more important or more significant, but because it captures the heart of God. Whether or not you take the eggs and the mother or whatever, that, that's not really central to the heart of God. This is like foundational. This is the kind of command that is the baseline of everything. And Jesus says, you, you're, you're so meticulous in this small stuff and you've missed the heart of God who just loves people. He challenges their generosity, but he challenges at a deeper and more fundamental level, he challenges their religiosity. In verse 24, he says this, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Someone asked me this week if Jesus was funny. I think there are times where you can see in the text that if you had been there, it was probably something that you would, you would laugh at. I think this is one of those moments if uh, you're the kind of person who considers puns to be funny. Uh, and I don't want my Facebook feed filled with pun day puns all afternoon. But Jesus is making a pun. In Aramaic, which was Jesus' language, the word for gnat was the word kalma. The word for camel was the word gomla. And so Jesus says to these Pharisees, you guys are hopeless because you straight out, you strain out the kalma and then you swallow the gomla. What he means is this. The Jewish law said that all insects are unclean for a Jew to eat. A Jew was not allowed to eat any uh, insect, anything that crawls along the ground. And, uh, and the gnat was the smallest insect in Palestine. So they were very particular. How do you make sure that you never consume an insect, even one as small as a gnat? Well, the rabbis figured the most likely way that you're going to eat a gnat is one that's swimming around in your drink. So whenever you pour a drink, they had to pour it through a filter in order to strain out the gnats so they could be sure that their drink had no unclean insects in it and they could drink it and know that they had remained spiritually clean. They strain out the gnat. In the same chapter of the law, though, it says that the camel, which was the largest animal in Palestine, the camel is also unclean and unfit for Jews to eat. And yet, Jesus says, you eat that all the time. Now, they weren't doing this literally, you understand. What Jesus is saying, it was kind of the equivalent of Jesus saying, you, you're, you people are crazy. You would send your drink back at a restaurant because there's a fruit fly in it, and then sit down and eat a whole meal of dog meat. Like, who would do that, right? What he's saying is, on these tiny matters, you are so particular and meticulous about your obedience. You wouldn't want to swallow something as tiny as a gnat. And the whole time, because you're so focused on this meticulous obedience, the whole time you're just wolfing down camel and not thinking twice about it. You're, you're meticulous in these tiny matters. And you ignore these major, major issues in how you live your life with God. In other words... One way that you know that your devotion to God has degenerated into mere religion is that you major in the minors 
and completely miss out on the heart of God. That's what Jesus is getting at. And I find it interesting, I said last week, that it was interesting that Jesus would choose the issue of truth-telling to point out you know, problems with our religiosity because I said, we have as much problem telling the truth as the Pharisees did. Well, I find it equally interesting that Jesus would choose the issue of how our faith relates to our finances because I think in some ways we have an even more challenging relationship between our faith and their finances than the Pharisees did. See, Jesus would say to the Pharisees that God's vision is that they would, first of all, maintain their discipline to tithe, to give a tenth of everything that they make in a year to God. The Old Testament commanded it. Jesus commends it. He affirms the practice. He specifically tells them not to neglect it. Jesus calls them to continue this baseline practice of giving 10% of everything they make to God. Now, it's not that Jesus is suddenly huge on rules, right? Everything is, you know, the rules don't matter. It's about love and blah, blah, blah. Oh, unless it comes to money, well then, you know, we better stick to the rules. That's not it at all. Jesus is saying that part of the expression of their love for God ought to be this commitment to give 10% of everything they make to God just like God asked, right? Love seeks to fulfill its obligation to its lover. So I'll say it this way. You know, Krista has asked me whether I wouldn't take in our home responsibility to clean the bathrooms once a week. It's just she hates doing it and uh, we both work full time and so we have to split the chore load and this just some. She's just asking me, can you clean the bathrooms once a week? Now I can respond to that request in one of three ways. I can say no. And just not do it. I don't care what you've asked. And that's just way outside of love. I can say yes and clean the bathroom. But do it not in the spirit of love. I can grumble the whole time and complain. And and mutter under my breath. And this is stupid. And I don't think I should have to do this. This should be Krista's job. And I can't believe. And do it in an unloving spirit. And I would have obeyed the rule. But I would not have loved my wife. Or thirdly. I can clean the bathroom once a week and do it in the spirit of love. Do it motivated by love. Do it in love. Do it for love. Do it to get love. Do it like, you know what I mean? Like you can do it as an act of of love. Clean the bathrooms as an act of love. Here's the one thing I cannot do. I cannot profess to love my wife and not do what she's asked. Right? I can't say, you know what, honey, I hear your request that I clean the bathroom once a week, and because I love you so much, I'm only going to do half of what you've asked. No, I love you more than that. I'm only going to do, I'll only clean it once a month. I'll only, no, you know what? I love you so much, I'm just going to clean it once a season. How about, this is ridiculous. Love has nothing to do with that. And this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is affirming here that part of our love for God manifests itself in the way that we give back to God out of what God has given us. And I think that there are some of us, for a variety of reasons, who haven't been living out the spirit of this generosity with God. I think there's some of us who, who just didn't even know that's a thing. 
And you're just finding out now for the first time that that's a thing, that the Bible says we ought to give to God 10% of everything uh, that God has given us in a year. Uh, I think there's some of us who are in financial situations who find it hard to figure out how to get right side up enough to start to do that. I think there are some of us who know that that's a thing and who are actually capable of doing it and who have just decided that we're not going to. But this is why I say are the relationship between our faith and finance is even more challenging than Pharisees in some ways because they were living this baseline and some of us aren't. And Jesus is inviting us to love God in the way that we give back to God. That's what giving is. It's a way of worshiping God. It's a way of saying, God, I can't believe how good you are to our family. It's a way of saying thank you to God. Thank you for providing everything we need and way more than we could have asked or imagined. It's a way of expressing our faith in God and saying, you know what, God, you've given us all this. I'm going to give you 10% as a, as a way of saying, God, I believe you're going to continue to provide for our family. I don't need to hoard it and cling to it because I believe that if I'm generous with you, you will be generous with me, which is what the Bible says. Um, it's a way of saying, God, I, I release my impulse for materialism and greed. I don't want to cling to this stuff tightly and be selfish. I want to be open-handed with what you've given. So I'm going to give to you to symbolically represent my open-handedness with the stuff that you've given me. It's a way to love other people. I don't know whether you thought about this, but um, everything that we spend money on in this community is loving other people. I mean, if you take out the lights and the sound system, the Wi-Fi and the heat and the stuff you need just to keep the buildings that we have operating, every dollar we spend on ministry, 50 cents, more than 50 cents, frankly, goes to nurturing a lifestyle of justice, mercy, and faithfulness with those in need. That's just real. More than 50 cents of every dollar we spend goes to serving and empowering others to serve the poor, forgotten, ignored, and marginalized in Niagara. The homeless, uh, soul support families living at risk around the poverty line, um, migrant workers in, in our Vineland community. 30% of the money that we spend as a church, we spend on nurturing community among us and providing pastoral care for the people who are in our midst. And 20% of the money that we spend is to provide for environments like this so we can come together and enter into the presence of God as a community. But everything we spend money on is about loving people. Now, of course, salaries get drawn from that. Mine and the salaries of other people get drawn from that money as well. But two things that I'd want to say about that. First of all, no one on our staff is getting rich by doing this. I assure you, 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 you don't go into church work for the money. That's for real. Um, but secondly, and more importantly, is that our expectation of our staff is that we're also tithing. That we're also giving 10% of everything that God gives us in a year back to the community because we're a part of wanting to love God and love people by participating together in the way that we give. Jesus is calling us to this. 
to say that a part of loving God is loving God with the 10% that we give. But it goes deeper than that because Jesus isn't just calling us like the Pharisees to be super meticulous about the way that we give our 10% to God. You know, bring a dime to church for every loony that we find on the sidewalk. That's what they were doing. And Jesus is saying, that's not what it's all about. It's not about that kind of meticulousness. It's about being generous. It's about letting what God has given us overflow from our lives into the lives of people who need it, who are not just giving 10% here, but who are allowing our, our finances to flow into justice and mercy and faithfulness to other people, walking people through the brokenness of their lives. It's about the spirit of generosity. People have sometimes asked me questions about uh, this, right? Like, should I give 10% of my net income or 10% of my gross income? And I used to have a long answer about gross income and that'll, that's everything God has given you. It allows us to tithe on our health benefits and our pension and so on. I don't, I don't give that spiel anymore. You know what my answer is now? Be generous with God. Be generous with God. Um, don't look for the bare minimum that you can do and still qualify as having been obedient. Be generous. People have asked, well, what about the other giving I do to my favorite charity, to my compassion sponsor child, to the homeless on the street? Does that come out of my 10% or is that above and beyond? Well, I read this and Jesus says you should give your 10 and then do justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I read it to say, above and beyond but my answer would be the same just be generous with God and people be generous let it overflow from your life let the love you have for God and the love you have for people um, be manifested in the way that you live your financial life period now for those of you who are in a position to do so and I hesitate uh, to bring this up because it's going to make it sound like we preached this message just because of this, but we didn't. This was just the next passage in the sequence of going through Matthew, but here it is. Seven days from today, we're going to be launching a capital campaign to raise money to pay for the building that we're buying for our well and location. And there's going to be public meetings about it. We're actually trying, we're organizing a, a worship service for June 4th in the evening in the Riverstone building in Wellens, inviting everybody so everybody can come and see the building. We can dream together about what God might want to do in, our, in the city of Welland, in part through our Welland community and so on. And then for the rest of the month, we're going to be accepting commitment cards and asking you to pledge. What, can you participate in this? And what could that generosity look like? How could you stand with our brothers and sisters in Welland as they move forward in what God is inviting them to do there? This, this is all going to be a part of it. But the point is very simple. That God is inviting us to love him and to love people in the way that we give 10% of everything that God has given us back to him and in the way that we extend out of the rest of our finances into justice and mercy and faithfulness into loving the people that God loves. And if you have questions about that, if you're wondering about how we spend our money or if you're wondering what next steps you could take to move towards a vision of greater generosity, you can email Kathy Vandriel, our finance director. Her uh, contact information's on the website, and she'll get you all connected with either our public financial statements or with resources to help you move forward in what it looks like for you to live a life of generosity with God. But that's what Jesus is inviting us into. But deeper than that, deeper than that, Jesus is inviting us to address the religious issue that lies beneath 
the same religious issue that we wrestle with probably in different ways than the Pharisees. But this issue of majoring in the minors and missing out on the entire heart of God. Probably for most of us, it's not because we're so meticulous with our tithe and we ignore justice and mercy and faithfulness. We do it in other ways. I know I've mentioned this before, but this little rhyme that I learned somewhere growing up that that basically Christians don't drink or dance or smoke or chew or hang around with those that do. When I was growing up, those things, drinking, dancing, and smoking in particular, those were three of the hugest indicators as far as I was concerned about whether somebody was following Jesus or not. You could be a person who violated all of the fruit of the Spirit. You could be unloving. You could be joyless, which is a sin. You could be a pot stirrer. You could be impatient. You could be unkind. You could be disrespectful. You could stab people in the back and be harsh and fly off the handle in fits of rage. But if you didn't drink or dance or smoke, you were just fine with Jesus. That is called majoring in the minors and missing out on the heart of God. Because Jesus would say that you want to know what it looks like when God is present in a person's life. It looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The Bible doesn't talk about drinking and dancing and smoking. It talks about these other things and yet for whatever reason these things become the intense focus of our attention we try to live out these ones and we miss out on all of this because what religion does religion is always ever only getting smaller right it's more rules defined with ever increasing exactitude in order to enhance our clarity so we more clearly understand what we ought to do every moment of every day That's how 10 commandments become 613 commands, become 1,200 pages of rules, become 73 volumes of commentary that describe in microscopic detail exactly what life is supposed to look like at every moment of every day. Someone once said to me years ago, I wish my Bible came with an appendix of every single sin so I could look up in the back whether what I was doing was a sin and then I could stop. Right? We love that kind of minuscule clarity. Give me the rules to follow. But that just makes things smaller and it makes us small as people and it makes our faith small. Jesus is inviting us to love. We don't need an appendix at the back. It would say two things. Love God with everything you are and everything you have and love everybody else as much as you love yourself. That's it. That's the whole thing. Right? Where religion... A life of religion is majoring in the minors. A life of devotion to God is a life in which the main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing. And the main thing is loving God with everything you have and loving everybody else as much as you love yourself. And that love has the power to enlarge us, to enlarge our faith, to enlarge our vision, to enlarge the scope of what God is calling us to, to enlarge our embrace, to enlarge our commitment, to enlarge how much we're prepared to give and how much we're prepared to love. It enlarges our understanding. It enlarges our empathy. It enlarges our hearts until they break for that which breaks the heart of God. It enlarges our heart until it breaks over the brokenness of people's lives. 
It enlarges our commitment to justice, to making things right for those for whom it's been made wrong. It enlarges our commitment to mercy, just to pouring ourselves out in kindness for those for whom life has been unkind. It enlarges our commitment to faithfulness, to walking in devoted commitment with those regardless of what life brings their way. It enlarges our, our commitment to the marginalized, ignored, and forgotten. It enlarges our commitment to the helpless and hopeless. It enlarges the way that our lives radiate the vision of Christ. And here's what I begin to imagine if we were to catch this vision, not of you know, microscopic rule obedience, which majors in the minors and completely misses out on the heart of God. What if we became a community where everyone was captured in the spirit of the main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing and the main thing is always only ever love. A community that just loved God with everything we have, including our finances, and loved everybody else as much as we love ourselves with everything we have, including our finances. What could God do through a community like that? I'll tell you what God would do. He would radiate his presence into the world in a way that most people have never seen. And that is the beautiful thing, the Jesus thing that I want to be a part of. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so fascinated with rules, with the rights, the wrongs, the do's, the don'ts, the specific definitions of what we're supposed to do here and there. And it's just so easy to slip into a life of meticulous rule keeping that on the surface looks amazing but deep down inside has nothing to do with the heart of God. God, not just with our finances but in every way would you capture us in the gravitational pull of your love? Would you help us know the depths to which, with which we are loved? Would you fill us up with the height of your love until it explodes in the breadth of your love into the world. Would you live your life of love through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.